Chapter Fourteen of the Lonely Warrior by Claude C. Washburn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It occurred to Stacy, however, that he had spent more than he could afford lately, and had nothing with which to go on his travels, and this seemed an excellent excuse for remaining at home. But he presently recollected that on one war Christmas his father had made him a gift of liberty bonds. He sold one with a sense of resignation. He did not feel irony in the ease with which he could solve all financial difficulties, for the idea of personal virtue, asceticism, was absent from his mind. He was sending all that money to Vienna because he wanted to send it, not because he felt he ought to. He kept out two hundred dollars a month because he wanted them, and he sold a thousand-dollar bond now simply because, if he was to go on a journey, he needed money. It is much more difficult to understand why he was going on a journey at all. He was not affectionate enough to be going simply because Mrs. Latimer had asked him to, and one can hardly take seriously the reason he gave his sister, Julie. He drove around to her house the afternoon before his departure, and on his way caught sight of Irene Loeffler walking briskly toward him and signalling violently. He waved his hat, but dashed by her in a burst of speed. "'You know, Julie,' he said a few minutes later, sprawling on the Davenport in his sister's living-room, "'it's all due to you that I'm going away.' "'To me?' "'Absolutely.' You lure me to your house, and then you turn an unscrupulous woman loose on me, and she makes my life unbearable, and I— Who? cried Julie, her eyes dancing. Who? Stacy returned. Who but Irene? Julie giggled. Well, what in the world has Irene done to you? she demanded. He sat up straight and gazed at his sister. Julia, he said, you know me to be modest. You know how little I esteem my personal charm, caring more for simple things such as goodness and— Oh, yes, Julie interrupted. I know all that. I want to hear about Irene. Therefore, he continued, when, from never having seen the lady at all, I began to see her almost daily, and when I didn't see her, to get invitations to functions given by her or functions at which she was to be present, it was long before I suspected purpose in all this. But, Julie, though modest, I am not a fool. Things have now reached such a point that I cannot take a walk in the park or motor anywhere without meeting Irene, and I tell you there is evil design in all this, and I'm going away. Julie was giggling increasingly. Only five minutes ago I evaded her, but not for long. My senses are growing as abnormally acute as those of Roderick Usher in Poe's story. He paused and listened apprehensively. And, in his words, I tell you that she now stands without the door. At this moment the doorbell did, indeed, ring. Stacy sprang up. You see? Good-bye, Julie. I'm going out the back way, he concluded, and fled. As for Julie, she threw herself down on the Davenport and laughed helplessly, in which position Irene presently found her. No one seeing Stacy with his sister could have reconciled him with the Stacy who set himself against society and flew into passions at his impotence to destroy. Yet there was no pose in his attitude toward her. Pose demands a marked consciousness of self, 
and this he was assuredly without. He behaved in that way because he felt that way when he was with Julie, which was not so very often, and he was obscurely grateful to her for making him feel so. He liked his sister better than in the old days. She had an ingenuous manner that concealed a rich sense of humour, and he was inclined to think that this was characteristic of her attitude toward all things, that, though her surface simplicity was unassumed, beneath it lay not indeed a deliberate philosophy, but a mature apprehension of life. But he did not waste much thought on analysis of Julie. He accepted her as a pleasant fact. Stacy, then, set off for New York the next afternoon. Julie was at the train to bid him good-bye, and so was Jimmy Prout, who tossed a book into his brother-in-law's lap, and sat down opposite him. Stacy considered Jimmy's agreeable face. Jimmy did no one any harm. On the contrary, he did people good by being such a companionable person. Why, thought Stacy, couldn't he be like Jimmy? If turbulence of mind solved anything, got one anywhere, there would be something to say for it. Since it didn't, since it led only to impotent fuming, what was the use of it? But, even at the moment of putting the question to himself, Stacy was disconsolately aware that he might as well ask what was the use of the tides, since they only moved back and forth. "'You know, Stacy,' Julie was saying, "'I'm over thirty, but every time I see anyone off on the train, I feel thirteen. I feel a positively aching desire to go, too.' "'Come on along,' he returned. "'Nobody I'd like better to have with me.' "'That's nice of you, Stacy,' she said gratefully. "'I would.' I'd come just this way, without a thing, if it weren't for Junior. He's having whooping cough. I've always wanted to do something impetuous like that. Have you now? asked Stacy, mildly surprised. But Julie, who was sitting next to the window of her brother's section, suddenly gasped and burst into laughter. Oh, Jimmy, Stacy, please, please, help me stop, she cried in a smothered voice pressing her handkerchief against her mouth. Oh, she mustn't see me in this state. Who mustn't? demanded her husband. I, Irene Loeffler. She, she's come to see Stacy off, Julie stammered weakly. She'll be in the car in a moment. Oh, dear. Jimmy laughed, too, and Julie made a tremendous effort at self-control, as Irene strode briskly down the car and paused beside them. She held a book in her hand. "'Hello,' she said abruptly. "'Who's going away?' "'I am, and he is,' returned Stacy and Jimmy, who had risen politely. "'That's so. Where are you going? Sit down, sit down.' "'New York first, Stacy answered cautiously. Irene dropped into the seat beside Jimmy and crossed her legs. "'I was looking for Effie Prince,' she remarked casually supposed to be leaving on this train. Most likely couldn't get her trunks packed in time. Never can. Here, you take the book I brought for her. Thanks, said Stacy. Then you're not going away? Sorry, I hoped you were when I saw you. The girl flushed faintly at this, but her embarrassment was covered by Julie, who gave a desperate choking cough. Here, said her husband gravely, take another pastille, Julie and he drew a box from his pocket. 
It's that kid of ours, he explained. Given her whooping cough, not a doubt of it. You'll both have it now, probably. But the conductor was calling. All aboard! And the three departed hastily, Irene giving Stacy a mannish grip of the hand. Stacy waved at them through the window, then stretched out in his seat and picked up Irene's book. He laughed suddenly. It was Les Chansons de Billy It was, anyway, an amusing departure, and Stacy felt in quite a good humor. But it was not a prelude to an amusing trip. Stacy wandered from city to city drearily. Except for being larger, they were no worse than Vernon. If they had been, they might have seemed less unbearable. They were merely empty, one after the other, empty places inhabited by empty people. New York sickened him. It wallowed in wealth, dazzled the eyes with it. Rugs, imported motor-cars, china, lights, theatres, food, more food. There was an absorbed attempt to minister to every demand of the most exacting body, with, so far as Stacy could see, not a thought behind it all. The follies were typical, gorgeous color, selected girls, riot of noise, not a word spoken that could reach beyond the intelligence of a subnormal child. Stacy yawned through the show, to the justifiable annoyance of his companion, an old college friend who had paid God knew what for the tickets. A hundred magazines stared at Stacy from the subway bookstalls, with a hundred pictures of sweet American girls on their covers, and who could tell how many hundred stories of thwarted Bolshevik plots among the advertisements inside. Stacy fled to Philadelphia, thence to Baltimore, then up to Boston. He went to dinners and dances and dinner dances in one place and another, debutantes a little nakeder and bolder than he remembered them in past years, quite in keeping with everything else. The whole country sang one vast jazz song of praise to the body, sole preoccupation how to gratify every instinct it possessed. It was callousness carried further than was credible, since across the ocean were thousands who, too, were thinking only about their bodies, perforce being unable to get sufficient food and clothes to keep them alive. He gazed at it all with bitter aloofness. What could he do about it? What could any one do about a world like this? There was a desolate emptiness in his heart that inhibited even rage. He longed for annihilation, the absolute eternal extinction of self. He had certainly altered in these last months. Even he, who tried not to think of himself, could not help perceiving this. His reactions were more jerky, disconnected with any former reactions, incoherent. He was not a strong, scornful soul, detached and looking at everything in one manner. He was a series of sterile, unrelated emotions, with the only continuous theme that ran through them all, disgust. He gave it up at last and returned to Vernon. Why, he could not have explained. He wrote no one that he was coming. It was a morning in early December when he got back. Snow was thick on the city. The taxi that Stacy hired splashed through slush in the center of town and slewed madly, despite its chains, on the boulevard leading to the Carroll House. Stacy flung himself on the couch in his study and presently fell asleep. 
he did not wake until parker knocked at the door to call him to luncheon two hours of unconsciousness well that was so much gained anyway he spent as many hours of the afternoon as he could in bathing and dressing then at last he left the house and tramped away through the snow he had no objective in mind but after a while finding himself near philip blair's house went up the steps to it and rang the bell catherine opened the door at first he thought that she looked wan and tired but she smiled with pleasure at sight of him and the impression vanished i'm awfully glad you're back stacy she said phil was saying last night that it seemed years you'd been away come in marion mrs price is here he felt the faintest touch of surprise no more for he was almost done with correlating facts his mind no longer worked that way he was rapidly growing unable to see people in relation to one another and so to find one relation natural another curious unity was beginning to desert his impressions each of them seemed to come separately thus he was scarcely at all surprised when at sight of marion whom he had nearly forgotten his old passion for her leaped up like sudden flame he shook her hand with a word or two of casual greeting but his eyes met hers electrically he made no effort to combat the sensation if anything he was grateful for it and the antagonism as strong as the attraction that formerly she had aroused in him was absent since he was living in the isolated moment marion was lovely he thought sick with an unrecognized desire for loveliness she wore a toque of white fur that fitted close to her small head and there were white furs over her shoulders she was a little thinner than before her marriage and her delicate features were as clear and fine as those of a silver goddess on some syracusan coin they all three sat down and talked somehow well where have you been this time stacy marion asked gaily fighting more dragons doing dozens of herculean tasks augean stables hydras taking atlas's place for a time she gave him a malicious smile clearly marion was as hostile as ever no matter on the contrary he was instinctively glad of her hostility it revealed warmth oddly enough it was catherine who flushed at it stacy noted the flush with surprise oh well everything was odd there was no use in trying to clear it up it was also incomprehensible that feeling as he was feeling toward marion he should not impatiently desire to have catherine go away and leave them together yet he desired nothing of the sort no he replied peaceably to marion i've merely been boring myself to extinction in a stupid world any time that atlas wants to let the sky fall on it he may so far as i'm concerned but he added it's gratifying to have you make all your metaphors greek marion she bit her lip at this and her eyes shone dangerously for an instant but presently she smiled again stacy turned to catherine how are all of you he inquired not very brilliant i'm afraid she said a trifle wearily we've all got colds all except carter who's still at school now i've got a cold phil's got a bad cold and jackie's got a horrid cold 
Poor old chap, where is he? Upstairs. You can hear him cough regularly every thirty-two seconds. I timed him last night. She made a brave attempt to pass it off lightly. But Stacy perceived that she was worn out, and felt sorry for her. Can't I go up and sit with him and let you rest? he asked. He was quite sincere in the demand, too which was as strange as everything else, since his passion for Marion was bubbling in his veins like a Circean draught. "'No, thank you,' said Catherine, with a rare beautiful smile. "'He's asleep now. I'll go up when he wakes. I'm afraid,' she went on, with involuntary formality, and turning to Marion, "'that I don't seem very cordial. Really, I'm glad you came, both of you.' "'Truly?' asked Marion prettily. Then I'll stay a few minutes longer. I was afraid I might be tiring you. Stacy considered her. He felt that she was hard beneath her beauty. She was not pitiful. She was not interested in sickness. It annoyed her. Yet this judgment made not the slightest difference in what he was feeling toward her. The only thing that affected him was his perception that she was somehow tense, and that she was staying for him. This stirred him. A strange trio, even Stacy could feel that. Yet they managed to talk with apparent ease, of Vernon, New York, the weather, anything. What a thing training was! But a small pathetic whine came from upstairs. Catherine rose hastily. It's Jackie, she explained. You'll excuse me for a few minutes, won't you? Hadn't we better go? Marion asked. No, please, I'll give him his medicine, and get him to sleep again, and be back down presently. Not a thing I can do, you're sure? Stacy begged. No, truly, thank you, Catherine replied, and hurried out. Neither Stacy nor Marion moved, but their eyes met instantly. They gazed at each other in silence. Stacy's heart beat heavily. He could feel the throb of it chokingly in his throat. Marion's eyes were inscrutable, but her lips were shut closely, in an expression of sullen anger. At last he leaned forward. "'Marion,' he said. She did not reply, but her fine nostrils dilated slightly. There was another moment of silence. "'Are you happy?' he demanded brusquely. "'No.' The monosyllable seemed to spring forth without her volition. You know I'm not, Stacy Carroll, she added presently, with concentrated bitterness. Why do you want to insult me? I don't, he replied, a sudden touch of pity softening his passion. They were, in some strange, partial, imperfect manner, made for each other, for they caught each other's emotions unerringly. The hostility went out of Marion's face. I couldn't have believed she said after a moment, that anyone could be so unbearably stupid as Ames is, hour after hour, day after day. Hatred flared up again in her eyes, but not hatred of Stacy this time, he knew. And brutal, she added between her teeth. Stacy could follow her thoughts as clearly as though they had been small, distorted goblins, leaping up and vanishing in the air the cut of her body. Marion had always had it, refined upon it fastidiously. Not at all vain, she had been aloofly physically proud. 
what she had felt for her own body was precisely what her father felt for his Chinese vases, and now she had had to turn this one cherished possession over to a new and despised master. Stacy caught it all, not through such analysis, but in a swift intuitive glimpse. He writhed. It's all your fault, yours, her eyes seemed to say to him. He sprang up. Marion, he cried, and strode across to her chair. But she had risen too, and her arms were about his neck almost as soon as his own encircled her. She lifted her lips to his with a long, tremulous sigh. A flood of passion submerged them. When he released her, she tottered, shaking, and clung to the back of the chair. He had never seen her so moved. He could think this even while his own heart bounded. Her face was glowing, transfigured and beautiful. Oh, beautiful! Ames will not be home tonight, she stammered. He nodded, dizzily, holding her hands so tight that he must have hurt them cruelly. He was reckless. Nothing, not the faintest bond, held him back. He wanted Marion, and would have her. As for Ames's absence from home, it was negligible. He did not care a rap that Ames was away, either on his own account, or because of Marion's reputation, or for any other reason. He would follow this instinct, this desire. But the truth about Stacy is deeper. He would now have followed equally any desire, a desire to commit murder, for example. He gazed at the girl, then slowly drew her to him again, but more gently this time, till his cheek pressed her hot cheek, and his nostrils inhaled the fragrance of her curly hair. "'Oh, Stacy, if, if Catherine were to come in,' she murmured. And at that moment Catherine did come in. She started. Her hand went to her heart. Then she stood there in the doorway, silent, motionless, not accusing, only like a sombre intruder on a tragedy. It is astounding, but the truth, that even at such a moment Stacy could receive from Catherine an impression of something fate-like, goddess-like, more than human, a sense of bigness, again the unrelated character of his impressions. But Marion, who had torn herself away from Stacy, gasped, then gave a little hysterical laugh, and fled from the house without a word, gathering her trailing white fur swiftly about her throat. Stacy was unmoved, except in the way the subsiding sea is moved when a storm is past. He stood looking squarely at Catherine, a twisted ironical smile on his lips, his eyes cool and challenging. Well, he said finally. Catherine sank down in the chair where Marion had sat, and leaned forward, folding her hands above her knees. Her dark eyes did not leave his. He saw that for the first time in their relationship all shyness had slipped from her. There was something magnificent about her, he thought, now that he really saw her unveiled. Oh, Stacy, don't, don't, she said at last. Why not? he asked, with polite detachment. Sanctity of the marriage relation? She shook her head. What then? Moral discipline of self-denial? Regard for Ames' price? 
Vernon's third best golf player? Or concern for Marion? You needn't worry about Marion. She'll never feel remorse, and no more shall I. Come, Catherine, you're not communicative. You, you know I can't talk readily, she said. But, oh, Stacy, don't, please don't. I'm not speaking to you with reasons, only from my heart. No, he returned grimly. You're speaking with all the massed tradition heaped up under the impression that through it some purpose can be followed. All a mistake, I tell you. No, no, she cried, her grave face alight with expression. I'm not. Suddenly her eyes grew pitiful. Oh, Stacy, she said, you poor hurt child. Do you want to hurt yourself more? At this his calm was shaken. A dull resentment stirred in him, but not because he was vain or even proud. I suppose, he said slowly, that because I, someone else that I used to be, felt in such and such a way about Marion, you would not have me trample on those old illusions, for fear of pain. Catherine, I do not give that for my illusions. Oh, nor I either, Stacy. Don't, is all I can say. In your heart you know I'm right. I do not, he burst out. He was angry now, but she nodded her head. You do, she repeated. Ah, dear Stacy, think. You're hard and bitter, or you think you are. Really, you're only hurt. He winced. But the one impulse you have is to look at things squarely, and to be one who can look at them so. Will you, then, do, do crooked things, have a secret backstairs liaison, hide behind corners, meet Marion in the dark, with whispers? Oh, you mustn't. The thrust went deep. He walked up and down the room restlessly, his heart full of anger and pain. Finally he turned on her. I'll do what I please, he cried. Who are you to preach to me like this? What are you in my life? Nothing. But at this she started, then buried her head in her hands, and wept. And when he saw that he had hurt her, as he had intended, he was shocked. However, she lifted her head, unashamed, almost at once. Forgive me, she said simply. Who am I? Who are we? We, Phil and I, love you. That's the only power we have over you. He gazed at her for a moment, helplessly and remorsefully. I'll do as you say, he said dully, but with his surrender, anger rushed upon him again furiously. Only, he added, trembling with rage, I'll tell you that you and Phil are impossible. You're too good, abominably good. It's sickening. Leave me alone now, both of you. He snatched up his hat and coat, and hurried out of the house. End of chapter 14